Welcome to New Mexico in Focus, the podcast for Thursday, December 22nd. I'm Laura Paskus here at New Mexico in Focus for taking a look back at 2022 and hoping that we bring some lessons into the new year when it comes to climate change, fire, drought, and post-fire flooding. You can watch the show on Friday at 7 o'clock on New Mexico PBS. And just so you know, on December 30th, New Mexico in Focus is looking ahead to what bills might come up in the 2023 legislative session on alcohol, abortion, hydrogen, rent stabilization, and modernizing how the legislature functions. That's 7 o'clock on New Mexico PBS. Now, here's our show on the environment. Welcome to New Mexico in Focus. I'm your host, Gene Grant. As we start looking ahead at 2023, we want to fix our attention on the environment. This week on the show, our land senior producer, Laura Paskus, takes us through some of the lessons we learned in 2022 about fire, drought, floods, and the changing world. 2022 was an extraordinary year for many reasons. In New Mexico, it was extraordinary for wind, drought, fire and floods. We have long known the climate is changing. We have seen and felt impacts for decades. But this year, think back to the spring and the summer, this year felt different and it taught us some things. If 2022 offered a preview of what's to come and scientists say that it did, there is work to do cutting greenhouse gas emissions, funding and implementing water planning, shoring up communities against wildfire, and protecting our unique and our beloved ecosystems. 2022 was hard for a lot of New Mexicans, many of whom are still now living with the fallout of a fire season that was already full-blown in April. New Mexicans whose communities are below burn scars that will flood for years to come. And if you are like me, you probably know some farmers who are already worried about next year. New Mexico communities are often described as resilient, and that can be true. But really learning from this year and making changes gives us the chance to show love for our neighbors and care for the future. We start the show with fire. Colin Haffey, welcome. Hi, Laura, thanks for having me. <laughs> so I just wanna start like statewide. When it comes to fire, fire season, what are the big lessons we learned in 2022? Oh my gosh, how long do we have? <laughs> that's, a, that's a big question. I think, um, first of all, 2022 was, was a record-breaking year for New Mexico. Almost a million acres burned across the state. And um, just want to make sure that we acknowledge all of the hard work that went in from our federal partners, our state partners, our local community people. I mean, people stepped up in almost every aspect of this. And so it was really inspiring, even though it was an incredibly challenging year for us. Um, the lessons that we learned on the one hand, um, given that it was a record-breaking year in the fires, you know, for the most part, except for two, two tragic lives lost in Ruidoso, we kept people 
mostly safe, you know, in, in these fires. So I think that's one really good lesson that our systems work to help keep people safe from early warning systems to the coordinated uh, response and, and the, you know, the quick action of our local and state officials. So on the one hand, great, you know, great lessons learned. On the other hand, you know, we're really, it's another example um, of how we're losing the battle um, on our fuels and climate problem. And so, you know, whether you look at um, the Black Fire or the Hermit's Peak Calf Canyon Fire, you know, these are really fuels problems um, combined with warming temperatures. And so that's, that's one thing that we'll take away from this is just, you know, we're, we're still, even though we may win, win some of those battles, we're losing the overall war. We're talking right now at the end of November, but you know, I know you can't totally predict what's going to happen in 2023, but what kind of a fire season could we be looking at in next year and in the coming years? Like, do we need to be ready all the time? Yeah. I mean, the short answer is yes, we need to be ready all the time. Our We've been in a situation for almost a decade now where we don't have a fire season. We have a fire year. And that means that on any given day we can have a wildfire in New Mexico. Doesn't mean every single day we're going to have the potential to have a Las Conchas or a Hermit's Peak Calf Canyon style type of fire. But there can but the fuels are available. I mean today just driving in it's windy, it's dry, there's no snow on the ground. There's all we are is one ignition away from a wildfire. So what can we do? Well, you know We've shown that defensible space around critical infrastructure and homes works. So we'll continue to do that. We know that um, the fuels treatments in the watersheds, in our critical, like in our critical watersheds, those do work, but they're like seatbelts, right? It doesn't mean just because you're wearing a seatbelt, you can drive 90 miles an hour and, and like have unsafe conditions and run into a, a semi truck and hope that you're gonna survive that, right? Yes, it prevents a lot of injuries and fatalities, but it only goes so far. And that's how our fuels treatments are too. They can help us engage with the fire. They can moderate some of the effects, but they're not gonna, they're not gonna um, do much against you know, record-breaking winds and, and temperatures. And unfortunately, we're seeing higher temperatures more often throughout the year. And we're starting to see you know, some windy conditions that come along with that. You know, it's not uncommon to have wind in April. Every New Mexican knows that's our windy season, but it is a little bit uncommon to have 40 mile an hour steady winds for 21 days in a row, right? Mm -hmm. And so how much of that is climate change and how much of that is just random events? I don't know. So we have to continue to do the work to strategically protect watersheds, strategically protect homes, um, work with fire, live with fire. All of those things are really important at the same time that we're preparing our communities and our families and our neighborhoods for the eventuality of, you know, a massive, a massive fire. Talking now at the end of November, um, you know, we kind of, we had that monsoon season 
I think we, many of us who weren't directly impacted by fires kind of were able to take a breath, but like remembering what the spring was like, that just like brutal nonstop wind and how dry it was and just not looking forward to the coming <laughs> spring. I know, and I, and I think every year, what's hard too is that the snowpack isn't going as far as it used to. And so even if we get an average snowpack, because of all of these different dynamics that are all tied to warmer temperatures, the snow is, is evaporating and sublimating quicker and it's melting faster. And then because we've been in persistent drought, I mean, we're, we're 20 some years into this drought. And because of that, our, our even a good snowpack year, we have so much water debt that it's not getting paid down by that snowpack. So every year we're kind of falling further and further behind. Even if you look up on the mountains and you say that's a health or you're skiing or whatever, and you're like, that's a healthy amount of snow, it just isn't going as far as it used to for a combination of reasons. And, and that's why we're starting to see, you know, the fuels and, and, and the, the grass and the trees and stuff become available to burn in April, you know, and then, on the monsoon season like that was it's monsoon season this year was such a double-edged sword because yes it put out hermit's peak calf canyon i mean we were we were preparing you know in the teams i mean hoping not but but preparing for the fire to go all the way to colorado you know we were having those kind of conversations which was crazy and the monsoon season put you know really was the thing that stopped that fire and allowed us to get to get control of it but the monsoon season also brought in so much water that people in, especially in the, the downstream areas of all of the fires experience massive amounts of flooding. And the sad part about all of this in New Mexico is we're just not, I mean, across the West, but, but it was evident in New Mexico this year, we're just not prepared as a country to deal with post-fire flooding in the same way that we can deal with the fire event itself. When the fire starts, you have the teams that show up, you have a lot of, we had almost, we had over 3,000 people, almost 4,000 people on the Hermes Peak Half Canyon at, at one time. After the fire, preparing for the floods, there's almost none of that, right? A lot of this coordination falls on local people who are, who've been evacuated, maybe their house or their family have been directly impacted by the fire. And so there's just, you know, in their small communities, I mean, Mora, San Miguel County, these are small communities and, and we put all of the burden on our local communities and our federal agencies come in to help, but authorities are, are lacking. The state comes in, but we have capacity and authority challenges. So there's just so many gaps in this post-fire environment that, you know, really results in a lot of suffering from the community members um, in in those flood zones and and like i mentioned we were successful in hermit's peak calf canyon not losing any lives you know we, even though we had an 11 mile run which is incredible to to be able to say after all of this no no one died or even got seriously um, injured as a result of you know of the fire in the community and um but we lost four people during the floods and that's, to me, very, those are always very preventable um, events. And partly because we don't have that coordination and partly because we don't have the added capacity 
after a fire, that's what that's it's really putting our communities at risk. So when we talk about next fire season, it's also important to think about what comes with the next flood season. So folks in the areas that are downstream of the burn scars are still going to have to deal with the monsoonal flooding in 2023, 24 and beyond. I mean, it's still flooding up in Los Conchas, as, as you know, not as bad, but but 10 years later. And so that's the hard part about this is how do we how do we rebuild um, the necessary infrastructure like acequias and drinking water and things like that that can support the community and also keep the community safe during the monsoon season where unfortunately, you know, for the next few years, we're going to be dealing with flooding. Yeah. So I wanted to pivot briefly to prescribed fire. And I just want to remind people, you work for the state yes. and the U.S. Forest Service is, is a different agency. So I do not work for the U.S. Forest Service. <laughs> I just want to put that out there. So when we're talking about prescribed fire, this summer we had your boss, <clears throat> um, State Forester Laura McCarthy on, and she talked about prescribed fire and some of the lessons we learned this year. And one thing that I keep thinking about that she mentioned was how climate change has outpaced our prescribed fire protocols. And she talked about adding new layers of contingency to planning so that when you're planning your prescribed fire, you're not just thinking about the area you're expecting to burn, but that you're looking at fuels and humidity and temperature and all that in the areas where the embers might um, come out. I was wondering if you could maybe explain a little bit more about um, the use of prescribed fire and you know what we might need to look forward to into the future. Yeah, I mean, prescribed fire is a is still going to be a very important and essential tool. And I think, you know, Laura and I and, and our leadership in the state, you know, still agree with that. We're also looking at the the realities of what happened in the Las Dispensas escape, which caused the Hermit's Peak fire. And we recognize that that is both a there's a there's a call from from the communities and, and from the leadership to make sure that we're uh, responding appropriately to that to that and we're working with our partners to do that and then making sure that um, we also take a moment to pause and say are what can we improve in the prescribed fire response and so the Forest Service has gone through and, and they've done um, they issued a report you know and and it has some suggestions and one of them actually is similar to what what Laura was talking about where we're looking at expanding our um, our sort of focus area when we look at doing prescribed burning. So, not only are we looking at the area <clears throat> that we want to that we want to actively burn, but we're looking at contingency lines and contingency areas where the fire might go if it were to escape. So that if it does go into if the fire does go into one of those areas, perhaps that area is another thousand feet lower in elevation. Well, that could be a, that could be significantly drier, and 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 that means that you're going to have different fire behavior and different and different um, suppression effectiveness in that in that area trying to control that escape. So it's about accounting and planning for what ifs, you know, in this situation, especially when we're trying to do burns in more complicated areas and in conditions where the the fuels are such that the window to burn, the opportunities to burn are very narrow. And so you have to 
um, you only have a few days a year in which some of these areas are available. And so you have, you know, if you want to burn in those spots, you have to be very careful because when those areas are available, the rest of the, the fuel type and the rest of the vegetation around it is also likely available. And so just planning for both the actual burn and then the contingency is, again, it's just a way of making sure that we're doing our due diligence, but also um, accounting for changing conditions and um, in the, the sort of new environment that, that we're operating in. Thanks, Colin. I appreciate you being here today. Thanks, Laura. Happy to be here. Even though our experiences do not compare with those who lost their homes, even New Mexico PBS was affected by fires this summer. We are in Mora, New Mexico, and we are sitting on top of the only transmission facility in this part of the state. So the Calf Canyon and Hermit's Peak fires swept through this area. It burned the entire facility, 29 power poles, all the wires, and it burned our facility completely to the ground ashes. So total destruction. So we knew that we had a few facilities in the state that were in the path of the fire, and this was one that we, we expected to lose. The day we did, the winds were reported to be in excess of 70 miles an hour up here, and the fire skipped through quickly. It was the worst case scenario for us. First thing is it was sad. to an area like this in the land that's been so well taken care of by the owner. Um, to a facility I've come to for a decade, uh, I got to know the animals. This is a place I would come and horned lizards would come out from under the building and, uh, and we would see all that and now it's gone. It's, it's... incredibly sad but then the next thing that comes to me is how do we how do we get it back how do we get back to where we need to be and how do we get operating as quick as we can and that's what we did we instead of lamenting our loss we just looked to the future and we've already set a new building on the ground there's not even power on the mountain yet the KME tower is right behind us and the other facilities up here we've got state weather internet service for the area, and then major carriers for the cell phones are in the other two remaining towers. The KNME tower here is the last link in what we call a daisy chain. We feed Apache Mesa, which is Tecolote, directly from Sandia Crest, and then that in turn feeds this tower. So when this tower was down, there was no television to the entire valley. That would include commercial carriers. Oh, it's paper. I think people are, are, are very used to, and we have been for a long time, we turn the button on and, and that's the last thing you do. If it doesn't work, you 
you rage at the machine. But there's an incredible amount of infrastructure. To turn my one building on here, right now I'm, I'm going to just directly involved in this. There's probably been several hundred, two or three hundred people directly involved in the, the effort that just allows us to stand on the top of this hill today. There's people going forward from insurance companies, the, the, all the suppliers of the equipment we use. This is millions and millions of dollars to put me here, to turn it on, to provide a signal, entertainment or education to people. It seems easy, but there's a full-time 365 day a year commitment to the, the work that's required to make us reliable. see that power lines are cut to a degree through properties to to provide some easement one for construction but the other is to give them a buffer from fires the same thing happens on the hilltop we don't just clear them out for ease for us but we clear them out to keep fire back the areas are typically maintained low brush um, we try to find areas that that can take a fire and then bounce right back um, you cannot protect completely especially in a forested environment but you can you can mitigate as much as you can by being a good tenant and then having just having a plan in place for when it happens. Yeah, this was probably one of my favorite sites. We're going to continue to see forest fires like this. Uh, as the climate is drier, they're going to be worse. They're going to be more out of control. We need to be we need to be good stewards of our forests. And, and I think that people, when it's out of sight, it's out of mind, but we need to start looking at what's over that hill and, and how can we prepare for the super fire that's coming through here tomorrow. This spring, the Rio Grande dried south of Albuquerque like it often does during irrigation season. By July, the drying also crept into Albuquerque. Meanwhile, seven western states, including New Mexico, are scrambling over water shortages on the Colorado River. As the arid southwest becomes warmer, it also becomes drier. But there's more to the water crisis than supply and demand. Geographer Andrew Curley explains that rivers have been in a state of crisis for a century, even more, since states signed compacts divvying up their waters and built large-scale dams to supply cities and large irrigation districts. Up next, Curley also talks about how indigenous people had their lives, landscapes, and cultures upended by these dams, reservoirs, and diversions. As Curley explains, in order to survive, indigenous people have made new worlds through innovative social, political, and cultural strategies. I wanted to talk with you a little bit more about the Colorado River, which is basically, you know, in crisis mode right now for cities and irrigation districts. Um, there's more of a demand for water than there is a supply right now. Um, you've written extensively about the Central Arizona Project, and I heard you speak recently about scarcity and how we don't talk enough about how dams and reservoirs are what you call the concrete manifestations of colonialist ambitions and how they contribute 
to drought um, and to this narrative of drought and narrative of crisis. Can you walk us through that a little bit? When uh, Boulder Canyon Act was passed, when the Hoover Dam was constructed, you know, there's all this mythology and lore about the construction of these infrastructures. And then eventually um, Glen Canyon Dam, Parker Dam, um, the Central Arizona Project, all of these dams along the lower basin part of the Colorado River, these um, these dams, um, we're, we weren't asking questions about, oh, this is too expensive. This is not serving enough people. You know, it was all less future oriented um, um, ideology like, oh, we need to create cap in order for Phoenix to grow. We need to create uh, build these dams in order for the Southwest to blossom. And the problem with, you know, obviously there's a different standard being applied when you're talking about dam, we're talking about infrastructures that serve white communities as opposed to infrastructures that serve uh, native communities. And you can guess why the reason, uh, what the reason is for those double standards. And, and so when you're thinking about things like the Hoover Dam, when you're thinking about things like CAP and you're thinking about um, the crisis we're in now, and the drought and the, the, the effects of climate change on the Colorado River, you know, that's something like, you know, when you introduce this question, you said there, the river's in crisis for X amount of people, water districts, these people, all of these people who have been benefiting from these colonial diversions uh, for quite some time. And, and if you take it from an indigenous perspective, if you take it from a Navajo perspective, a today perspective or Hopi perspective, you're going to you're going to see that that river has been in crisis for quite some time going back to uh, these first incursions into the region going back to the construction of the roosevelt dam along the salt river you know once the the colonialists came in and started to dam the river and change the ecology that's when the river started to go into crisis that's kind of the origin of climate change in the region it did affect the the climate it affected the river it affected the ecologies of the region that's exactly what we're talking about when we're talking about climate change. So we can't divorce these infrastructures from the consideration of climate change. And so in the presentation, I show actually that's what ex we include these infrastructures when we're thinking about the effects of climate change. We look at reservoir levels and we say, oh, look, there's, uh, there's um, climate change here because the reservoirs are sinking. Well, those reservoirs are those colonial intrusions in the first place. They're not natural. They're not meant, the river was never meant to to sit the way it does behind the walls of these uh, dams. And so that itself is the origin of the problem beyond um, this larger question of, uh, of um, uh, declining snowpack or faster or faster melting snowpack or, or, or prolonged drought uh, in the region. I mean, those things are also important, but what we're not considering are the effects of these dams. That was kind of the point I was trying to make is like, you look at even how we talk about climate change we talk about uh, the Colorado River and it being endangered. And it was like, and when the origin point of that endangerment begins in most people's mind is fairly recently, and it doesn't go back to the Colorado Compact. I feel, I, arguably, the Colorado Compact has had more impact on the Colorado River than uh, the effects of climate change thus far. And so why aren't we talking about that? Yeah, I, and it's and sort of um, talking about these these myths and these different narratives. You know, when we talk about climate change, um, kind of you know across the news media and 
there's a lot of doom or talk about apocalypse and you and and many others point out that that's really a eurocentric narrative um, around nature and around climate catastrophe um, what is that miss out on what is that lacking how could that be different how is that different I'm not the first one to come up with this point. Um, many other uh, indigenous scholars and, uh, and environmental historians even have talked about how um, how the, the the way we understand time and progress and future catastrophe um, it is neglecting what is the experience of indigenous nations. What is the experience of of people on the ground or mar or people that are sucked up into these systems? when uh when worlds end you know there are these world ending experiences for people that have already happened and so you're thinking about uh apocalypse and your imagination is imagining the end of the world for a certain group of people and usually they're suburban or affluent or you know city people or politicians or i don't know what is in the minds of people when they're talking about this apocalypse in the future or these the, the danger of the um of, of the rivers, but um, what ends what ends up being neglected is kind of these past uh, um, intrusions. And so when you're talking about the damming up of like the Missouri River, right, with the Pixelona Axe and the um, flooding of hundreds of acres of indigenous land that was guaranteed through treaty, that is a world changing experience. That is an apocalypse of sorts. And when you're talking about the building of these dams along the Navajo Nation and the land swaps involved in order to get Lake Powell um, and and um, and to still maintain a land base in the Navajo Nation, these are these are apocalyptic uh, scenarios, and often you know they happen uh, with dams and with the way we treat water in the West. We've created these huge and world-changing infrastructures throughout the region that that have also contributed to the changing of the uh, landscape, the urban landscape. You know, e even going through Phoenix or Albuquerque or Santa Fe over the last few years, you see cities growing and growing and growing, made possible by these infrastructures. So the worlds are always changing around us. And, and what um, is missed by this fear of what's happening at the end of the world due to climate changes is, is really the kind of in, innovative, both social, political, and cultural uh, strategies that Indigenous people have had and have had have been made to to have in order to survive across all of these uh, apocalyptic events. You know, we've we've dealt with uh, all all sorts of all the all, all sorts of world worst case scenarios. You know, even being moved physically off of our land at the end of a bayonet onto in Huelde, you know, into Bosque Redondo on the eastern end of, of um, New Mexico. That's between 1862 and 1868. You know, that is an apocalypse moment for us. And we survived that and we overcame that. And, and we, um, we made a new world uh, in the Navajo Nation after that. And so there's a lot to learn from indigenous people's ability to respond to these catastrophes and to think about what are the values of a society um, that is um, that has had to overcome all these uh, marginalizations and yet continue to survive, and what is and compare that to the values of a society that are causing those those problems that are causing these catastrophes 
to occur in the first place. And then maybe rather than uh, uh, um, thinking about technical solutions, we think of um, political and ethical solutions, right? We think about how we treat the planet uh, ethically first before we think about things technically. And I think that gears us in a totally different direction than if we continue to, to, to have this modernist and, and Eurocentric um, idea of time, of progress and, and technical innovation. And we have crisis and the solution to those crises is more technology, improved technology. Um, when we're thinking along those lines, we end up um, not only creating more problems because you have to create new kinds of industries to serve these new ones, we perpetuate existing inequalities. When we're valuing technological innovation over what are our, over social directionality and what are the values of the society, then um, then we're not looking at other kinds of solutions. Um, how do we how do we uh, work on social, political, and economic inequalities at the same time while we're dealing with things that are seen to be in the realm of the environment, environmental crises? Um, and I think that is kind of the larger, more, I guess, philosophical question that we have to ask ourselves when we're thinking about um, uh, about these uh, ideas of apocalypse. So I'm sorry, that's a really long winded answer. And it feels like it's leading, leaving with this kind of vague um, idea of what to do in, uh, uh, in people's minds. But um, that's basically where I'm at with uh, with how we were thinking about these things, so, you know, me and other other people who have been writing about this. Yeah. Well, thank you, Professor Curley. I really appreciate it. Yes, you're welcome. To better understand what we know and don't know about water in New Mexico, here's hydrologist Stacy Timmons. Stacy Timmons, thanks for joining me today. Yeah, thank you. So I wanted to just start right off. In terms of water, what lessons did we maybe learn in 2022? Like what really stood out in 2022? Yeah, I feel like um, 2022 is yet another reminder for us that we live in a desert state and um, we're, we're facing some pretty significant changes to um, our water and to our climate. And so we saw in 2022 uh, fires of extreme magnitude. We saw sections of river drying that hadn't dried in tens of years. Um, we've seen uh, wells going dry in places around the state. And um, I, I believe it's a real wake-up call for us to kind of pay more attention uh, and, and accept the fact that it isn't just like changing off in the future, but it's changing like now. <laughs> we're, we're in it and, and we really need to um, be a little bit more prepared going forward with how we're going to, to face those big changes. So you were a key motivation behind the state legislature passing a Water Data Act a few years ago. And I'm curious, since passage of that law, um, what are some of the most important things that we've learned about our water challenges and maybe like where we need to go? Yeah, yeah I think the, um, you know, kind of stepping back just a little bit and, and talking about the, the climate impacts that we're facing, you know, we're, we're seeing in the water data and in a lot of the research that's been done that we're facing five to seven degrees warming, five to seven degrees Fahrenheit warming temperatures here in New Mexico over the next 50 years. And with that comes uh, increasing aridity, so the air is drier and taking up more of our water. 
we're seeing reduced uh, snowpack and uh, in, uh, reduced streamwater flow and reservoir storage. And, and with that also comes impacts to our groundwater resources in terms of increased pumping and more use of groundwater and also um, reduced recharge to those aquifers because there's less water in the streams and rivers. And so <clears throat> all of that also plays out in terms of the fires that we're seeing and the landscape changes. And um, as I see it, uh, looking at those uh, features that we're facing now, um, we're, we're in some ways moving like we're in a car without a gas gauge in terms of our water. So we're, we're moving ahead uh, in some ways not knowing in real detail how much water we have to work with. Um, and that's not uncommon, I think, around the nation and around the earth. You know, there's places where we can, we can operate like that, but here in the desert southwest where it was already dry and now increasingly dry, I think we need to have a better handle on exactly how much water we have um, available to us to use. Um, and so with the Water Data Act, this is an opportunity for us to really uh, more finely tune exactly how much water is available for our different uses. And so there's been a lot of work um, from, from various agencies here in New Mexico. The uh, New Mexico Bureau of Geology and Mineral Resources, where I work, is, is set as a convening agency amongst several state agencies to really work to improve how we collect our water data, how we manage it internally, and then how we share it out for, for other uses. Um, and we've done a lot to characterize the data that are being collected. So everything from water quality on public water systems to snowpack to stream flow and, and reservoir storage to, in some places, really good um, groundwater level measurements around the state. But um, in, in doing that, we're also seeing that there are some tremendous gaps. And so um, as we move forward uh, in this, new paradigm of increased water scarcity, I think we need to have an even better handle on exactly how much water we have. And so um, some of the data gaps that we're seeing uh, in the work that we've done with the Water Data Act include really um, having a careful handle on our aquifer capacity and how much water is available there um, and how much changes are happening within those reservoirs um, beneath the ground. And then um, we're also seeing some gaps in terms of um, how water is used around the state. And so um, I think a lot of the work that we've done so far with the Water Data Act really highlights some of the um, places where we need to put more time and energy into monitoring and tracking our water resources. So you mentioned groundwater. A graphic that you shared with me that we'll put up um, shows groundwater diversions approved by the state since 1900 through today. Um, it's a like shocking graphic to kind of go through. Um, what like jumped out at you when you saw that data? Yeah, I think uh, to me, it's, it just really highlights how many places where, um, you know, there is a density of wells that are potentially extracting groundwater um, that can have an impact um, on the aquifer and on each other. And so paying really close attention to um, exactly the trends that we're seeing in groundwater levels in those areas where there is a high density of, of wells. And then also some of the places that jumped out to me on that, that graphic is there's some places where we just have no wells and no information on our aquifers. And so there's some real um, need for, for really 
further characterizing um, the, the use of water in our urban areas, but then also um, trying to better understand what's going on in some of our more remote and rural areas in terms of groundwater. So yeah, it's an interesting graphic to, to kind of stare at for a while. Yeah, and over and over again. Um, I feel like I, it's not always fair to ask people this question, but I really want to know, like, how do we manage our realistic expectations for the future? Like, lots of places, there's talk about, like, managed retreat along coastal areas. Like, is managed retreat something we need to think about for arid places or certain areas or the wildland urban interface like what conversations do you feel like we're not quite having in the state yet i guess i feel like managed retreat in the context of new mexico isn't really an option like we need to probably think about more carefully how we're going to make do with less and what kind of changes we're willing to make and i know you know change is really hard as a human condition to to face until something really pushes us to do that and so I think there's there's a lot of um, I think there's a lot more opportunity, and I'm optimistic that there are, are ways that we can begin to thrive under the under the water conditions that we have without having to to move or how, without having to to kind of um, change where we live and how we operate. There's there's just so many um, ways that we can. Um, work together to uh, collectively share the resource and, and um, appreciate it more. And one of the things that comes to my mind is, um, you know, communities where there have been water shortages, um, once they begin to see how much water exactly they have to share through data collection in particular, so um, in Estachia communities, for example, when they've installed a flume and a data recorder, uh, the communities are more readily able to see exactly how much water is available and more equitably distribute it so that everyone has um, a, a piece of that um, limited supply. And so I think that there's opportunities to um, bring it back to better understanding of the water resources and better utilization of those water resources rather than uh, perhaps having to, to move away from, from places where, that we, we've grown to love and experience here in New Mexico. Right. So it sounds to me like the more we know, the better we can prepare. <laughs> yeah, there's a saying, you know, we can't manage what we don't measure. And I think similarly with, um, with water data, I think there's, there's um, you know, we can't maneuver quickly. We can't make quick decisions if we don't have data quickly at our fingertips. And so there's a lot that we need to do um, in, in the data sector, which has kind of fallen behind some of the other realms of data and technology. Um, there's a lot we need to do to modernize where we're at with, with access to our water data so that we can be more, more um, malleable and, and able to shift and change as, as things change around us. Great. Well, thanks, Stacey. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you, Laura. We recently aired a conversation with the Pueblo of Acoma's Teresa Pasquale about protecting the greater Chaco landscape. So much of what she talked about applies more broadly. Here, we talk about what is lost when we fail to make a commitment toward change. Hi, Teresa. Thanks for being here. Hi, Laura. How you doing? <laughs> Thanks for having me. I'm good. So I wanted to start, and I wish we were actually sitting there together today right now, um, Taco Canyon. Lots of people are familiar with it as a national park and a place they might visit for a day or maybe camp, um, but it's a lot more than that. 
to the people of the Pueblo of Acoma and other tribes. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about why Chaco Canyon is so special. Sure, um, Chaco Canyon, as most people refer to it uh, and know it as, is uh, referred to as Washba Shaka um, there at my home community of Acoma. And it's significant because it plays a, an important role in the movement and migration of our people as they made their way into present-day Acoma. Um, many Pueblos and many tribes have some kind of relational um, context to that special and sacred place. Um, many Pueblos uh, reaffirm their present-day connection to Chaco and and also have stories and oral histories that take them through that greater Chacoan landscape as they made their way to the present-day Pueblos that they occupy now. And so these places were places where our, um, our ancestral people and their clans really started to form and organize into the distinct societies and, and Pueblo communities that we have today. And so they brought that knowledge, that skills, those um, the teachings that they acquired over, over centuries of living on the landscape um, and really brought that forward into, into the present day communities. And so what we have now in our Pueblo communities here in the state of New Mexico um, really are the descendants of those people, the ancestral people who once occupied those lands. And so that's what gives it special meaning. So in the last, gosh, many decades, probably since the 1940s, the San Juan Basin has been a place that has been drilled for natural gas and more recently for shale oil, I think it's called. And I'm curious, you know, there are hundreds, thousands of wells around that Chacoan landscape. And I know there's, there's broad impacts, but what are some of the ways in which that drilling has affected the landscape and the people who are a part of it? We know that over 90% of federal lands in that greater Chacoan landscape have already been permitted for exploration and development. What the Pueblos and tribes have long been asking for for their federal agencies is really the protection of that last remaining, I would say even less than 10% um, as development continues. What is lost in that landscape really is, is everything that the development touches that is needed to support that kind of extraction from roads to well pads to the visual landscape to, to um, the soundscapes that exist to the migration routes of wildlife to um, just the ability to connect with a sacred landscape and the ancestors in quietness and peace and solitude. Um, all of that is lost with development and you don't have to go far to see it. Whether you come in from the north side or come in through the south entrance to the park, one will see what different types of extraction have done over decades of development in that area. 
because my my village Akuma sits to the south I happen to come in from the south entrance to the park and it is never lost on me that just in that short trip to Chaco um, that one can see uh, uranium development we can see the impacts of coal and coal mining in that area and now oil and gas and because as i as i've said our history isn't written in our pueblo communities and many tribal communities that history that that connection to place is all held in the transmission of our languages through those stories, prayers, and songs, that as that land is disturbed and developed, it becomes as if one is erasing the pages of that history book. And we can't grow a new landscape. Certainly one may say, well, after the development, we'll, we'll try and uh, regrow the grass and the plants, but really the context is lost. And so when we lose that and the ability to bring our children to those places to teach them, then what really what we're impacting is the ability of a present day community to not only transmit that knowledge, but all of the knowledge that's contained within that landscape our ability to understand concepts um, in terms of conservation, in terms of stewardship, in terms of uh, understanding how to deal with climate change. All of those answers are contained within that landscape, but it can only be possible if those communities are still allowed to make that very present day connection and actively use that landscape as it was intended. So the Trump administration had approved almost 400 new drilling permits, um, which a coalition of tribes and environmentalists and archeologists have really been opposing and pushing back on this development for years and years um, and are now trying to reverse that decision, but the Biden administration is sticking to it. Why, why do you think we as a society seem unable to or unwilling to protect these most special and limited of places? I think it's hard for, for all of us um, because we're not willing to make that sacrifice. Protecting some of these special places requires hard work, commitment, the dedication of resources, but also sacrifice on our own personal part. We all live in an environment that is heavily dependent on oil and gas. And we haven't really invested um, long enough with enough resources to start really moving us away. We, we have just really begun that transition here in the state. But what we need is really to understand what is that impact on present day communities 
And what is lost if we fail to act, if we fail to move, if we fail to make that commitment towards change? Well, thank you, Teresa. I appreciate you talking with me. Thank you for having me. And lastly, one more clip from the full conversation with Teresa, which you can watch online. I love what she talks about here, about what it really means to connect young people to their landscapes and why that matters so much to everyone. If we were to protect Taco in the ways that we still can and in, in true ways, what are the things that we gain and what are the things that future generations gain? When we do this work, it is, it is work that calls us beyond the creation of, of, of policy. In my home community, I, I see it as giving back young people a place where identity formation begins. When we talk in the state of New Mexico about a place where our children are struggling within the educational system, identity formation is critical to that. Being certain of who you are and where you come from and being secure in knowing that those places that are cherished by your community, that make that foundation for your learning as a young person, aren't threatened, aren't going to be destroyed by development. That those places are just as important as your math book, as your history, as your chemistry book, as your English book, that those places along with what you learn are critical, if not more important than those things that you will acquire in Western education. They are critical to the foundation of the well-being of our young people in identity formation, in mental health, in education, in language learning, dual language learning. All of these things make for stronger students, make for stronger communities, make for stronger leaders. That is what we gain in terms of tribal communities. It's also what we stand to lose. There is the opportunity in that area to begin to finally have a discussion about alternative economic models. We don't have to put before our children that the only opportunity that they're going to have in terms of economics is going to be a job in the extractive industry. My father worked in the uranium mines. Back then, there were very few options for them. 
And that's what sustained them. It's what put us through school. But in the present day, we have alternative models of different types of economic development that can sustain our children where they don't have to make that same choice because the options are limited. We gain those things when we preserve those places. We gain stronger, healthier communities. Our, our mental health, our physical health improves. Um, the wildlife improves those things that impact um, climate change like methane releases those things begin to subside and nature has a way of restoring balance we as humans have a way in which we too can participate in restoring balance we gain more than we lose and I think when we talk about conservation, especially in those areas that are often viewed by others on the outside as wastelands, as someplace that can be sacrificed, we began to value not only the lands that are there, but the people, the people who live there. And we began to say to one another, we see you, I value you, I want something better for you. And that's, that's my wish, that's my wish and my hope that if we do move towards protection of those places that we gain back for our communities, those things that help to raise a new generation of young people in stronger, healthier, well-educated communities. And, and that will lead us to better outcomes for us here in the state. Thank you to Laura for all her great work through 2022. If you want to watch more, there are extended interviews and web extras on the Arland YouTube page or on Instagram. Just search Arland New Mexico on either platform. Head over to YouTube to watch the show. You can also find us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Happy holidays, everyone. Thank you.